Hello, welcome to Research Matters, exploring high quality research methods and design in the fields of business, management and law. Brought to you by Russ Glennon, Steve Wynn, Stephen Buzzduggan and Catherine Roycroft. Hello, welcome back to Research Matters, um, where we take an inside look at all things to do with high quality research design, uh, principles of research design in the fields of business management and law. So in this episode, I'm just going to start off with um, a little quote that uh, someone sent to me, and I should just read it to you now. It's just a short quote. We shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's taken from Little Gidding from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And um, that seemed to be, I think, quite a nice, albeit literary, encapsulation of the principles that we've been talking about through these last several weeks now. That the reflective process of examining and understanding and re-examining your position in order to understand you know, where you start from in your research journey, as well as looking at your objectives and your goals and where you want to go, that that seems to sort of fundamentally capture that, that process of going through a phase of confusion, um, of, uh, of a lack of understanding. This, this, this process I sometimes call pushing back the boundaries of, of ignorance, making it clear, you know, that there are areas that you now know that you don't know things about. And then we go through the process of trying to fill those and patch those. And then we come back anew with, with fresh eyes, hopefully, to look at our, our exploration, our research, and to be able to consider that. And, and that for me, I suppose, is almost the back end of that phase where we think about, well, what have we learned and what do we know now and where, where should that go? Where could that go? And, um, I'm hoping that we can start to consider for this podcast, then that notion of, uh, of cause and consequence, I suppose that that makes it sound a little bit like sense and sensibility, doesn't it? Causality and contribution. There's lots of titles we could bring here. Um, so I'm going to just open that up to um to you steve and just say how do you think that that does sort of encapsulate that research process for us uh, thank you russ i, I think it, i think it really it does actually i mean that idea of of um returning to for where, where we started but being able to look around from that starting point with different eyes i think is is very important and i think it in many ways we often start from a position of an intuition or a thought or a feeling about where we want to go and the relationship to our research question. And I think the process of thinking methodologically, thinking about those strange beasts like ontology and epistemology, is not so much, uh, you know, to, to, to have those words, you know, added to our vocabulary. Now we can use them in various situations. But I think they, sh they ought to be used in a way which brings more clarity so that we can really articulate now what our underlying premises are for our research, what we think about the knowledge claims that we're going to make, and having um, a much sharper, more focused understanding of where we're going to make that contribution in the long term. Where exactly are, are we starting from and what pathways might that take us down? So I, I do think that that idea of returning back through, as you say, clouds of ignorance or whatever it may be, or we're shaking up the bottle of our sort of preconceptions. And then as, as it settles again, there is that new sort of uh, clarity. 
And that enables us then to take the next step with confidence, as you say, knowing what we don't know, but therefore also knowing what we do know. I mean, being able to make that distinction between what we're confident in, in terms of uh, linking to our research question, and also where we know we're not trying to go, what types of questions we're not answering. And it takes us back, of course, of course, to the metaphor of the landscape, doesn't it, that we, that we explored earlier on, that idea of what pathway are we going to take through the landscape, over what terrain, um, under what type of cover, what type of instruments are we going to use to, to guide us. So I think it does, it brings it all back to that idea of preparing to take those next steps, but with a, a view to not what the eventual outcome will be, that will remain undecided at this point, but at least knowing what type of outcome. Yeah, I, I, I really like that, Steve. Um, it, several things I think we can try and unpack there that I think are really helpful. Um, when you talked about seeing things again with different eyes, which is that, you know, knowing the place through the first time, we're arriving back and seeing it again. We often talk about, or hear people talk about using lenses, theoretical um, lenses as the way, the sort of the, 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 the mechanism through which we then see um, this situation and that we try and help it to understand. And for me, um, possibly because I'm overdue an eye test, it does make me think of that when you go and have your eyes tested and they put the contraption on your eyes and they slot in the different lenses and they say, is it clearer now or is it clearer now? And it, there is something about that, um, finding which way to orientate those lenses to help clarify um, what it is we're looking at and what it is we want to see. Um, I also really like this notion around intuition. And I think when I've been reflecting a little bit on this process and on attempting to help other people understand their research journeys or their research landscapes, which is actually, I think, quite a tricky thing to do. Um, I think there are several myths that start to emerge of the, the omnipotent researcher or the omniscient researcher that somehow you should be able to know everything or see everything at the end of this um at the end of this research journey and i, I suppose this is you know we go back to to joseph campbell or, or or todorov in terms of that you know those quest narratives and it's about achieving this you know mysterious and mythical end goal where some somehow you know we'll find the lost city of el dorado and everything will will be shiny and and lovely and actually i think i mean that's obviously a, a myth and people don't articulate that as something that they they think is right but i think what we see is that myth being written through the way that people often um view research and view research um outputs and outcomes and i, I have I have seen, uh, witnessed people saying, you know, we, we can absolutely guarantee, you know, prove that this is a thing that's happening. And I think that degree of certainty about what it is you're seeing is, is sometimes illusory. I think it's quite often illusory, I suppose. Um, and so rather than this being a process where this is scientific in the very purest sense of the scientific model um people do default to seeing research as only quote scientific research and and which we said we, we talk about that kind of classic hypothetical deductive you know i i look at data i have a thing that i'm going to test i try it i see whether it works and then you know that tells me my answer actually i, I think we very much 
underestimate the impact of of intuition or that that should have um and that was a bit of a I'm, I'm mixing lots of my kind of literary and art uh, kind of backgrounds the, the greek people who study greek drama that the, they they refer to this agnoresis this kind of eureka moment this kind of pivotal ooh, everything changes or the french sometimes say they say sacloche it means it rings a bell not as we would sort of say that in english meaning or oh, I, I sort of remember something but there's something things you go whoa i suddenly understand something now actually a huge amount of I think what happens in certainly in social science research is around that intuition. We sort of have an idea that something is going on and what we want to do is, is dig through and, and find some, think a way of, of uh, spotlighting that or foregrounding that as a process. Um, so you can tell that this is something that has just struck me because I've gone on quite an enormous lengthy ramble there, Steve. And, and I think it's probably only appropriate that I bring you in to comment on my ramblings about, about your comment. But that point about intuition was, has been hugely significant for me, actually, I think, in this discussion. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that you almost you almost strayed into the word epiphany. I think, and uh, is that idea? Is I think yeah, when you get that intuition, it's I I feel almost research is a way of thinking. How do I take that intuition and make it capable of being communicated? How how do I structure it in a way which can be shared with wide with a wider research community? Um, and because we haven't yet perfected the art of directly sharing thoughts with other people we do need to find a way to convince and persuade and present and and argue a position as you say it often grows out of that intuition that that sort of background thinking you know that, that's happening in there we, we don't know how or why but it does seem to be those connections are being made that associative thinking um and it's yeah, I suppose it's just it's foregrounding. It's foregrounding and bringing out those those ideas in a way which other people can see, which I think is important because when we think about the rigor of writing a PhD thesis and and the various chapters and what we're doing, and part of it is to demonstrate competence and and skill. There's no doubt about that, but also part of it is an unfolding process, isn't it? It's saying, well, I took this germ of an idea, which came through intuition, some some sort of relationships that I thought were important. And then through structuring the research process correctly, I'm now able to communicate that to the individuals involved. Yeah, it does that sense of, I think what we're sort of discussing here, what I'm, I'm kind of rambling around, I guess, is this, we've got, it's this notion of kind of going and round and, and coming back to it. And in a way, I guess the clearer that we are when we write a research plan project proposal, then the 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 so we have a launch pad you know from which to 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 set off or you know a bus stop from which we uh, we embark on a journey and we come back to it and we have then this sense of well if i'm clear about what it was i was hoping to achieve we stand more of a chance of being able to i guess discuss um what we are achieving or what we think we might have done so we often would see that discussed in the context of um, presenting our research back at conferences. And as making me think, actually, I think there are differences in how we uh, take um, an unfinished project to a conference and discuss that in a way where we seek contributions from others, a development. So we engage in research as this, just to use perhaps some of the jargon, a co-productive process or a co-creative process whilst it's still ongoing. Um, and that's different maybe from um, 
presentations where we take research that we've concluded and we've analyzed and we take that back to the community and we open it up to them and we get them to, you know, hopefully engage with that. I think what we're sort of swirling around, I think, in this is, is this notion then of, well, what's the, what's our contribution to the academic dialogue to to the the conversation that's taking place with the scholarship and with other scholars, and what's the consequence of our research? What what are we going to do with this in a way that we said business management law are very much applied fields? There are you know obviously an enormous number of practitioners, more practitioners than there are academics, obviously by by some considerable way. Um, although as a brief aside, uh, I remember being at uh, a meeting of the British Academy of Management. We were talking about social media and somebody asked me how many followers I'd got on Twitter. And I said, I said, oh, I don't know the exact number. It's it's just about 3000, I think, something like that. And somebody said to me, oh, that's very good. Are they all public management academics? And I said, no, no, they're, they're, they're not. There's a mix there. And I, I thought, I'm not even sure if there are 3,000 public management academics in the world. Um, and I'd hope that not all of them would agree with me. So that that's, my, I suppose, my way of introducing this notion of, is it Schumpeter that talked about creative destruction and that actually maybe we see research as a process for, for doing that? Um Steve, I know that that's uh, uh, an academic who's much more in your wheelhouse than mine. Maybe if I sort of lob the ball of, of creative destruction over to you and um, let's see where you could run with it. Thank you very much. Um, actually, if I just come back to a point you raised before, this idea of, again, disseminating work via conferences and getting feedback and so on. Again, I think um, it brings us to another interesting question as well, is how do we articulate what a contribution is? Because I think if we think about sort of, the, again, the standard model of research that people tend to think of in terms of generating relationships between cause and concept and sort of causality, thinking about relationships between phenomena. And I know we've discussed this before privately, haven't we, that, that this idea of there being People can understand that if we if we uh, identify a relationship between certain demographic characteristics and life chances, that people can see what the contribution might be. They can interpret that. They can think about how that fits in with the the with the wider knowledge they have of life and society. So when you when you're starting to communicate with that wider audience, I think there's there's less effortful work to do in community there is still work to do but but i think it's a more a clearer or more easily understandable link um and then when we think about contributions in other ways perhaps thinking about undertaking work where we're looking at lived experiences where we're thinking about sort of qualitative research interviews um thinking about social justice issues i think it becomes then more in more difficult to intuitively fall back on how do we demonstrate this to be a contribution rather rather than a description of something that that we've been examining um the question is does methodology help us with that I think it's an interesting question, isn't it? Our, is, is our greater understanding of our notions of methodology and research primes and ontology and epistemology, does that give us any tools to, to help us describe what contribution we are making? There's a contribution within sort of the theoretical literature we can talk about, can't we? We can talk about direct impact. But do you think yourself, Russell, that there's anything that comes out of anything that methodology helps us with in terms of communicating that contribution, particularly in those more, those areas where it's less obvious that there's a strict sort of causal relationship. We found out that A makes B happen. 
Yeah. Um, one of the real weaknesses with a lot of science communication, or perhaps more accurately, the way that the media picks up um, scientific research, um, is is very much they're desperate for you know this cures cancer or you know this thing causes cancer. Um, I think I've I've made reference to the Daily Express seeking everything, seeing everything as an ontological battle about you know which of those two categories does it fit into, but. For the types of research that I think we see around business school and a law school, um, there is this real notion of, of, of being applied. And in my own PhD thesis, um, I, my contribution chapter talked about the contribution to theory that I was making. So how was I developing theories that I had used and, and worked through um, with that? And that required me to operate in, in one domain, I suppose, of thinking. Um, I also talked about contribution to literature in terms of papers and things like that. And I talked about contribution to practice and what I felt the ideas that I had developed would um, be able to contribute to helping practitioners develop the way that you know local public services are managed and that sort of thing. And um, I think one of the things that I've taken most away from talking to you about this uh, has been to be able to take that step back and think, what are my claims of knowledge? What, what are the grounds on which I make a claim or I stake a claim about a contribution that I have made? And that's not to do so in a very mealy-mouthed way and to sort of you know minimize and say, well, you know, I've only made a contribution to this one person's idea in this one interview that I had with them. You know, th we can be excessive, I think, in in our um in our kind of caution about some of these. But actually, it should be less for me about making sort of bold claims to knowledge, but more about trying to think about the different domains in which those contributions um, can have an impact. And again, you know, we go back to this notion of research, scholarship as dialogue, um, and, you know, this idea that we, we advance science by disproving the hypotheses rather than by proving them, um, in that that is truly what gives us some knowledge, which, you know, a claim which is which is novel, um, that we thought this would work and actually no, it doesn't work in this instance. So I think when you are at the very beginning of a journey, uh, as your development as a researcher, as a PhD student, that contribution must feel like, you know, an impossible mountain to climb, you know, an Everest or a K2 of, um, impact and contribution. And in fact, I, I think I agree with um, some of the things that that Stephen has said and Catherine Roycroft, who will be joining us on some later episodes, that impact, impact in that sense of, you know, what difference does your research make actually isn't considered earlier enough in a lot of research development and particularly in new scholars. And ideally what we want to do is kind of bake it in that they are contemplating and actively thinking about how they advance um, our understanding of, you know, particular phenomenon or experience or products or whatever it would be. So, yeah, I think really very much that, that having had an ability to reflect on what I think is 
real or actual knowledge and the grounds on which some of those things are um, developed, um, I think has been really helpful for me in, in trying to broaden, I think, my sense of what a contribution might be. So I'll, I'll pass that to baton back to you. Uh, thanks, Russ. I think um, as I was listening to you, as I often do, uh, I, I have these. I have these. There's two. There's two different Steves in operation. There's one that's listening, and then the one that's sort of meta reflecting on on his listening, and then thinking about the wider conversation. One thing that did pop into my mind is because I think it can be quite difficult to think about knowledge claims and and how not to, as you say, become too nuanced and too sort of narrow in, in your claim. And it just made me think of, there's a there's a Chinese proverb, isn't there, about knowledge and unless something changes you, you don't really know. So you may learn something, but unless it has a change in you or on you or within you or without you, whatever it may be, but there has to be some sort of change. And I think that's quite an interesting idea in this context because, again, where we might say, uh, we've established, let's say, we're, we're, I don't know, we're, we're engaging in understanding, again, you know, the impact of education on income, and we can build a model for that. And we say, okay, we understand that. So then we think, what do we do to address the problems that arise from that? When you're comparing that to thinking about, my, say, my own research, textual analysis of code of policy documents, looking for conceptions of executives, and people might say, well, what's the contribution? And I think, there's two answers to that. One is the contribution is a, a change in the way we may approach the problem of how we represent and, dis, and, and discuss executives. But there also might be just that, that, that change in thinking and in theorization and in thought, which may itself go on to have a ripple effect in ways that we can't yet imagine. And I think as long as we're looking to change either theory, understanding, consequence in a practical uh, sense, I think in any of those ways, as long as the knowledge is making a difference to, in some particular way, I think we're making a contribution. And I think where the methodology comes in is, and I think I agree with you, it helps us understand exactly through which, how can I put it, which sort of dimensions of research space that that contribution is primarily flowing. It may have sort of residual impacts in other areas. As it may stimulate other people to think about other types of questions and processes. Um, again, we talked earlier on in the sessions, didn't we, about what is reality? And it's a big question, isn't it? What, what is reality? What is it to be real? But hopefully it's come through that we're not, we're not asking that question um, as though we're sort of in Plato's cave thinking about, what is the nature of reality? Is, is it what we see before us? Is it something that's happening below the surface of reality? We're just trying to think about what is reality within the framework we're using? What is the notion of what is real and what can be talked about and discussed in particular ways? And I think being, being as open as, as we can to there being different notions of what reality may be or different types of experiences um, and again, making that difference, coming back to that idea of making a difference. If your research is focusing on the lived experience of refugees in Austria and how they experience their integration into society, there may be some learning outcomes from that. Absolutely. We may learn uh, maybe some processes or procedures didn't work very well, or we can understand how people may have felt more or less comfortable. But it may also just be that understanding that experience for, for that group of people is in itself an impactful understanding. Um, just to give voice to that to the, that group of people um, and their experiences, and to recognise that that is an aspect of 
the reality, whether it can be described in a series of equations or not, whether it can be replicated or not, it's still there at the heart of this wider sort of complex, murky, muzzlesome wor- world that we, that we live in. I think we're competing on the uh, sort of <laughs> meandering there, but uh, but you can see my point out, hopefully, Russ, can you? I, I, I can very much. And um, I find myself delighted um, that this podcast and the Screen Crush uh, YouTube episode looking at the last one of Moon Knight uh, that had recently aired. It's the penultimate episode um, in the series that we were just discussing that I know Steve and I have been um, very much enjoying. Uh, both of those feature a discussion of Plato's Cave, and I think that's an excellent uh, place to be. I think what you um, articulated there that, again, that I really like and and hopefully we can now pick up and we'll, we'll explore this a bit further, is this notion of, of giving voice. And so I want to set that in in maybe two contexts. I uh, fundamentally, you know, um, echo the importance that actually sometimes just the process of doing something is more important or as important as the outcome of the thing that you've done. And so, you know, giving people an opportunity to be listened to, giving people a voice um, could be much more of an impact than perhaps, as you said, what you might write up for a, a journal paper about, you know, talking to um, you know, migrants in Austria or wherever it would be. Um, and then the other context that I think is important within that is this overwhelming sometimes discourse of um, the only research that matters is stuff that is absolutely of world-class originality and, you know, paradigm-shifting, paradigm-shattering kind of research. And within higher education in the UK particularly, um, we are very beholden to that. And this this notion of, you know, the star rating of the journal in which you publish is, is you know, somehow a magical indicator of, of how important your research is. And, you know, for those people that might not be quite as familiar, you get these, um, we have a list of, of journals that are ranked, you know, one star, two star, three star, four star, and, and lots of journals obviously would not even be ranked. And, um, I have heard people say, well, research that's in a two-star journal is not is not good enough. Now, a two-star journal, the description of what that means is it, it's it's of national significance. And you think, who could ever be disappointed writing something that was significant in, in a national, you know, level context or debate? So this absolutely reductive um sort of hegemonic discourse of all research must be groundbreaking. Uh, let's use uh, our beloved prime minister's favorite phrase, world beating uh, research, um, which when you apply that to scientific research, I think is about as meaningful as it is whenever he uses it. But this this real discourse that we that I think we see you know, is quite harmful to new researchers, to early researchers, to people getting back into research after career breaks or whatever, that it somehow trivializes what they're wanting to do as if it as if it's not important. And I think you and I are probably much more comfortable with the idea that um, almost any research is good research. Um, almost, I say. There are obviously got to be limits, and we, we've talked um, with some of the students about ethical research and, and where we draw our ethical lines, our, our red lines that we wouldn't cross. Um, so I think that that, that 
we see that sort of hegemonic discourse again, as I said, in, in, in the Daily Mail, you know, citing people's research to say, well, you can't eat bacon anymore because it causes bowel cancer. And, and obviously the, there is a relationship between, you know, preserved uh, pork products preserved with nitrogen or whatever, the, and that kind of impact on bowel cancer. But it's not, it's not that direct, you know, two-step causal relationship. Uh, if you do A, then B happens. And there's a real... I think sense in which I would love to see a more, a, a wider, more ample, a softer perspective taken to what a contribution is. Um, because not everybody can be uh, an Einstein, or, you know, that sort of level of figure, as we said, or a Bertrand Russell or whoever. So, yeah, I think that is really important that sense of um voice of participation of engagement with people and um, and i think that's something that we would all do well to encourage i suppose then that sort of let's take us back full circle again how do we how would you and i change the way that we have been teaching or discussing these concepts to try and facilitate that different type of conversation do you think there's anything that we could do uh, to make sure that we're you know playing our part as, as best we can with that well i feel as though i'm getting caught up in some sort of metaverse now because i, I think i think the very activity we're engaged in is a particularly good idea but we've talked about the purpose of, of the of this particular podcast a number of times but i think one of the fundamental purposes is just to show that um, let's say that that sort of slow meandering thought process with lots of different twists and turns where we're starting and trying to think through what are actually very difficult problems, not problems that can easily be solved, not problems that always have nice, clear answers to them. So I think being acknowledging more the process of research and foregrounding the process of research. Because as you correctly say, when you look at some, um, I don't know, you go to one of the four-star journals and you read the article that's published and it's clear and crystalline and everything makes sense and every section fits together. And I think sometimes, I mean, there may be occasions when that is what was submitted, but most of the time there's been craft, there's been, you know, there's been perspiration, there's been a lot of people feeding into the process and giving advice and guidance um, and the sharpening up of the argument. So actually, I think we tend to want to present the outcomes of research as though they, they, were, they were a single step. We had the idea and here's the outcome. And I think not acknowledging that the whole research process itself is, I don't know, it's full of uncertainty, isn't it? It's full of, of quest self-questioning. It's why on the arc of a PhD involves, as you mentioned earlier on, a passage from doubt to self-doubt very, very early on in the process, probably in the first six to 12 months, where you realize, as you start to realize what you didn't know, you should have known before you started up on the path in terms of the question you were interested in. So I think that, I think these types of events where we, we I mean, people may have guessed, we don't script these conversations. We sort of, we, we have a brief discussion as to what the purpose of the, of the, of the podcast is obviously, but we don't script that because we want to, we want to open up that process of thinking, don't we? And, and sometimes Russ will ask me a question and I'll think, thanks Russ for asking that question. <laughs> now I need to think on my feet and come up with an answer. And I'm sure it's, uh, it's vice versa sometimes. But that process of listening and that engagement, that dialogue, that interplay uh, is incredibly Im important. 
Um, do do you agree, Russ? Yeah, I, I it's one of the things I have most um, enjoyed and benefited from from doing the podcast, um, and in it not being a kind of didactic chalk and talk lecture those have their place i get very frustrated i think when i when i read things where they say oh the lecture is dead and it should all be flipped classrooms and blah 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 and i think well we've been using lectures for a couple of thousand years again so you know there must be something all right about it you know as a way of conveying some information some knowledge i think lectures are perfectly you know, practical as a way of inspiring people to want to find out more. I think lectures, a good lecture can be, you know, really, really powerful. Um, we've, I'm sure both got experiences of really inspirational lecturers and other lectures where I've thought, oh, I now know, feel like I know less about the subject than when I started, because I don't know, it's either been presented in such a way that it seems very opaque and, and possible to understand or, you know, or, or it's just boring. I, you know, some people sadly are boring public speakers. The thing I love most about this though, um, Steve, is that we have wholeheartedly embraced, I think, the messiness of research and that way in which I mean, how many, if I had a pound for every time I said, oh, I think I've had a bit of a meander there, you know, I'd probably have, well, let's say 30 or 40 pounds probably. Um, but those, those, those shifts, those kind of strolling around, um, the Spanish, they, they say to dar una vuelta, to give a turn, sort of to go around the block almost as like, just to have to go for a little bit of a wander, but they, they make it this kind of turn. Um, I think that's what we do. And that's why I think the, the Elliot quote hit home, I think, for me. This, you know, we go through our exploration and we come to the place where we started and, and we know it for the first time was, was so powerful. That hit quite strongly with me. I think it's really fortunate you and I actually bounce off each other in that way so well. Um, some people are really uncomfortable with not having a, you know, clearer script and stuff. And, and that's, that's totally cool. I'm not, you know, want to be negative about those. Everyone has their own, you know, strengths and weaknesses and stuff. But I do, I do hope that the students and other people listening to this podcast use it or see it as opening a door to maybe some other conversations, you know, that they can peek into and they can decide to go into the room or to, you know, slam the door shut and run away if they want to, that's okay. But that it's just giving some opportunities for people to do that. And I, I have to say, I genuinely think this has been one of the most valuable learning experiences I personally have been through, um, which is why I was so keen, I think, to to continue, you know, talking to other researchers and, you know, hopefully practitioners, people who've brought research into into their, you know, real world working lives, I think, as 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 we go. Um, so I guess coming around again to think about um, some of those contributions um, and and the difficult questions. You're right, you've asked me, uh, you know, a couple of questions and I've kind of thought, I don't really know how I'm going to answer that question. But that that is a beautiful thing. It's nothing to be scared of. I think this is not, you know, it's not a test that we, we pass or fail at the end of it. Um, you, dear audience, can decide whether we've done a good job or not. That's up to you. But, you know, as long as we're happy with having had a good conversation. Um, is how how have your experiences of of doing this, Steve? I, I guess compared to uh, compared to that, 
I'll just go back and just echo your comments on the lecture and I'll move on to that because um, some of my most vivid experiences in life involve lecture rooms. Now, that may well be a sad condemnation of my life, but Maybe. Uh, they, they really do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just listening to particular individuals who who understand, who, you have know, an engagement with the subject. I think that's probably what I'll say. And and listen, sitting back, listening to them talk, and reflect, uh, and and wonder around the subject. And I think it, oddly enough, this this will sound really strange, but um, and I do have that sort of tendency to lapse into philosophy. I know, but it makes me think of the ancient Greeks and the peripatetic philosophers wandering the country listening to different voices and different opinions and different from different perspectives in order to inform themselves. And, we, and the archetypal in, um, uh, example of that being Socrates wandering about Greece, finding out why, why is everyone else an expert? Why do I, why do I not feel like I'm an expert? And, and uh, so he, he would wander around, he would, he would see the most uh, informed people on matters of, of religion or politics or whatever it may be. And he reaches fundamental conclusion. Well, I, I don't know. They all seem to think they know, but they're not as wise as me. And people say, "Well, how do you how do you mean you're wise?" He said, "Well, at least I know what that I know very little. <laughs> that, that my grasp is <laughs> now. I don't. I don't think we want to end up with knowing very little. But I think that exposure to different thought processes, different ways of looking at a problem, from different perspectives and different positions. Because although we may have gone round in our you know, so metaphor. We've gone around and started back where we began. As we said earlier on, we may have different eyes and, and, and some extent almost down to a different place. Um, it may have the same, you know, sort of location in terms of latitude and longitude, but actually because your experience is now different, you've brought something of difference to that place and you can start off or start your journey again with those new eyes and take them forward. So it's not that I think that's an important aspect of these podcasts, isn't it? I think just opening up the fact that we can think differently. Now, that may be that you still progress your research in exactly the way you always plan to, but hopefully it will be with that little bit more of, of an appreciation and empathy for different, you know, other, other paths that people are going to follow and, and the sort of the the sort of the linkages between different research paradigms because it seems as though we tend to again we tend to teach in textbooks as though they're sharply dissimilar and don't make the mistake of ever mixing them up which is good advice by the way but at the same time at a higher we take a step above that they're all they're all motivated ultimately by the same thing which is to acquire knowledge for different reasons perhaps with different priorities um so I think that's, that's what the podcast has really made me feel of it. I feel like an ancient Greek wandering about. And, and as you say, you, I think you mentioned into looking into different rooms or I'm, I'm thinking about going to different city-states and asking questions of people. Why do you do this? Why are your customs and culture different? Um, and if you think about sort of interpretists and positivists and uh, critical theorists, they've all, they've all got their own culture and own norms and, and ways of doing things and ways of thinking about the world. And I think it's just interesting to at least – engage with those different camps at some point in your PhD process or your research process, just to understand why, at least temporarily, they're not for you. What, why it is your research question requires your individual approach. And I think that's, um, it makes me think of it. I don't like to use the metaphor because it always sounds quite aggressive, but uh, Walter Benjamin used to talk about the sharpened acts of reason. Really, really, really getting a keen edge as to why you were trying to use the tool that you were using to achieve um, your ends. So I don't, I don't know whether you 
feel slightly peripatetic in in the, although we're sat down you see this is this is the problem isn't it but um but we're not that literal are we well i i hope not i mean i think my wandering physically is probably less of a distance than it used to be but intellectually has gone maybe slightly further and 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 for an ancient greek steve you do not look a day over 1800 years old i'm gonna say it's you know you've aged it's the the wisdom i think has preserved your youthful demeanor there um no i, I love that and this sense of the quest to become or to consider expertise is more important, I think, than obtaining that level of expertise. But they're not, um, they're not, you know, uh, completely opposed goals, or they're not mutually exclusive. Um, Going through a PhD is, uh, uh, we said this, a, a journey, an apprenticeship, it's the way that you develop your researcher's eyes, I guess, your mind uh, about these things. It's also, I think I would argue quite strongly, uh, a test of emotional resilience as much as it is of intellectual capacity. You know, you've got to get to the end of it. You know, a friend of mine always used to say, a good thesis is a done thesis. Um, and that's one of those kind of truisms, but but nonetheless is, is very accurate. So I think as long as we acknowledge that, as you said, there are different domains and different realms and that we can appreciate some of those. I, I think having done a, um, a languages degree for my first degree, when I was in my first professional career, and I, I worked for um, Littlewoods, a retail company to begin with, um, and then I, I worked for local authorities, for councils for a number of years. Because I didn't come from a disciplinary background, I wasn't a planner or a civil engineer or a social worker or something like that. Um, that has kind of made me very much um, a generalist. I, I've always kind of felt a bit of a jack of all trades or I was once described by um, a manager as, as his Swiss army knife, that I'd have an attachment that would work for something and it wouldn't ever be the best thing necessarily, but you could chuck something at me and I would have a bit of a bash at it. I do think that that is a mode of research approach that I particularly uh, appreciate. And I think having been to conferences, um, maybe earlier in my kind of career, I would have been more concerned about demonstrating my own expertise. I think now I'm much more comfortable with the notion of embracing other people's expertise and offering up my ignorance, you know, to say, I don't really know what to do with this. I, I would really appreciate some comments or some views on maybe, where do you think I could go with this? Are there other bits of literature that I've, I'm ignorant of in, in the sense of, you know, I just don't know about them. I, sh I should go and read more. And that has that has been, you know, I suppose a, a journey that's been ongoing as I said, this sense of, you know, generalist of, of knowing, I, you know, I like to say I know a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and uh, what I've done is I've parlayed that into sounding like I know a lot about a lot of things. And that's not really generally the case. You know, you sometimes don't need to probe too deeply before I run out of you know, knowledge or metaphors in a particular subject area. But that sense of, I think, connections between things, the, the webs that kind of link us together, that I think is my metaphor for the peripatetic. It's, it's um, I suppose, a, 
for me, it evokes the image of a spider, which is not my favorite of all creatures. I have to say, I'm, you know, slightly arachnophobic. I certainly, I've worked on becoming better, but I used to be as a child, terribly so. Um, that, that image though of a spider, you know, kind of drops to the floor and it, and it walks along somewhere extruding its web and it, it ties its web to a thing and then it creates this connection and then it's able to use that connection to branch off to other connections and then it goes round the arms and it makes this you know kind of spiraling set of connections that is i suppose very much how i see my peripatetic wandering um, academic journey so i don't think it's it's really in any way different i'm i've you've gone classical illusion which i think is very impressive i've i've gone Charlotte's Web, I think, is where I seem to have gone. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, I think that they're both interesting um, angles. And so maybe then let's think, you know, where to now for Steve the philosopher? Where do you think you see your kind of peripatetic research journey wanting to take you? Or, or do you not have, you know, that much of a deterministic view? Well, I wasn't expecting that question. Uh, <laughs> um, Interestingly, I have been given some thoughts to this, uh, Russ. And again, uh, this is a common question I think uh, our listeners would share as well and, and also the, the group of research students that we're, we're engaging with. Um, I, I think, oddly enough, someone actually listening to me talk about philosophy uh, and it not being 1992 while that's happening um, is, is very much making me think that there is, there is some more value, I think, for, for pursuing a more philosophical approach to some of the areas of research I'm interested in, which is very much sort of located in organization theory and, and or sort of accounting as well. So I think actually, oddly enough, and this may be an uh, unintended consequence of doing these podcasts, is I think I'm going to return back to thinking more philosophically about the research that we do. Um, now, I've always been aware equally though, you know, I, I'm contributing to business and management research, not philosophy. Yeah. But at the same time, I think I think those those core concepts and principles still have. Uh, I'm going to put proviso in at the moment. Still have been underexplored or underremembered because I don't think I would be the first person ever to want to explore them. But I think they tend not to get embedded um, and not appear in, in in the sort of the literature in the way they might do. So I think a, a return a return to sort of taking matters of knowledge and knowledge claims and ontology seriously from a philosophical point of view is where I want to go. I think we take, we take them, we worry a lot about whether our claims are, are, are reach sort of statistical quality markers or whether or not we had enough interviews and so on. But I think the question of what type of claim is this and, and, and what might its resonance be actually across, across the knowledge domain, I think we, we still, we, we steer away from that because it seems to be overly abstract. And then that brings me on to my own sort of hobby horse there because it tends to be, if you ask about what's impact, and I think, think thinking more philosophically is, is very much an impact that we should see in research um, rather than constantly just wanting to take a theoretical archetype and either test it or not test it or develop it, which is all very important. But I think, some, I think those questions of philosophy are still important. What, what do we mean by to know something? Um, and how does that then translate more directly into business and, and management? So how about yourself, Russ? Are you, what, what's your plan? It's, it's, it's a, I mean, I knew that that question would be coming straight back to me. So, you know, I, 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 I was, I suppose, anticipating that. Um, and before I answer it, I will, I will go on a very slight diversion. Um, 
it's it's been a thing that I've said to a couple of um, people I, I, I've talked to around kind of careers and ambitions and things like that. And I, uh, academics, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about now. And I've said, well, for me, when you get to become a professor, you get to design your own title. You get what it is that you profess of um, rather than you lecture in. And I, I've said to a few people who, who've been having conversations about, well, I don't know whether I fit in here or I do this or my, I'm mean, this sort of academic or I'm mean, that sort of academic. And I've said, if you were made professor tomorrow, what would you choose to be a professor of? That was a way of sort of encapsulating what your, you know, tr- I was going to say true purpose. That sounds, you know, very much, I think, not like something I should be saying. Well, what is it you see as your purpose as an academic? Uh, and, you know, will, will Steve, will you be um, you know, the first professor of accounting philosophy? Um, that would be fantastic. Where do I see sort of my journey going is, is a really, again, difficult question to answer. But, you know, I've been spending some of my time um, helping other people consider their own futures. I, I came up with this self-assessment tool that helps people highlight where they have strengths and and weaknesses against the university's promotion criteria. And it's something that I've done that you can do for all of the levels of our promotion, you know, for senior lecturer to reader to professor. And on, we have, we have two pathways here. We have, you know, roughly an education pathway and a research pathway. They're slightly called different things, but those are the, those are the two paths. And I spent quite a bit of time, including including today before recording this podcast, um, talking to people about their plans and their ambitions and how they want to um, move some of those things forward and which path do they want to follow and, and you know what would they see as some of their priorities. And that, again, I think has absolutely triggered you know some some patches of, of reflection um, for me about what it is I'm I'm here to do. I very much see. Um, my role. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate, uh, I think, to be a reader here at MMU, which as well as being a title I love, because who doesn't? No, I can say, look, of course I need a big bookcase full of books. It's literally my job title. Um, and, and I'm recording this in my study, which is, you know, replete with books um, and musical instruments. But I see my role in MMU to be one of helping develop research and the research culture and to help other people to develop. And, um, you know, touch wood, if I hopefully get, get to the lofty heights of being a professor, I will have done so by helping other people to get on and to get by rather than clambering over the top of them. And I'd be honest, I've seen people who have reached lofty heights by clambering over the top of literally climbing on the shoulders of, of other people. And, and that's never been, I think, something that attracted me as a way of working. Doing this course and making the contributions through the podcast, however modest they may be, I think has made me think there is more of my time, I think, to be spent helping others than necessarily promoting the um, you know, achievements of my own research as much as that is also something important to me. And in fact, I think I probably said this right at the very beginning, my research focuses generally on helping people to improve the way that they do things. So I suppose I'm seeing that anew with fresh eyes to say, yes, that is perhaps my purpose, or I see it as my purpose. And that that's not going to be everyone's purpose and that's okay. Um, but I do think it's something that we, 
in a very commodified higher education context in, in the UK in, in business and management, a very numbers and, you know, target kind of driven thing. It is something I worry that we are slightly in danger of losing sight of. And I think in anything that I can do that helps to ask people difficult questions that make them ponder, contemplate those things, not all of those people are going to embrace it and run with it. And that's okay. Uh, because it's not, it's not a test of French vocab. It's not right or wrong. Um, it's about helping that debate and that conversation. What, um, what say you, Steve Socrates? Yeah, th- thank you for that. I think it was really important and quite powerful um, in terms of that the orientation towards helping others. I think it's, it, it, and it, I think really, again, that's another way of thinking about this podcast, isn't you making that direct contribution through opening up to other people, giving people that transparency, that, that, that insight into these are difficult questions. It just pick up on something you said just towards the end, you ask a question and, and someone has to go, Hmm, hmm, that's interesting. Now we don't have, the, we don't have the luxury. We need to speak. <laughs> we need to speak in the podcast, but really you can almost hear the machinery starting to, to to turn over, isn't it? Because okay, we, do we start speaking and then sort of thinking catches up? Doesn't Absolutely. It Absolutely. And I think that it's it's really important that to just just to be open about that, isn't it? So that's one of the ways of helping people that to see that whilst uh, I mean, I, you know that that idea that I've never been comfortable with just being a a disseminator of knowledge because I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what that is. I think textbooks are really good textbooks that do that. And, you know, you can, you know, or you, you may be able to access that on a website or whatever. Particularly in my subject area, accounting, it's fairly procedural, you know, the, the, a lot of the, mm. obviously the more academic work it isn't, but it's, a lot of it's quite procedural. So people can learn that. But so my role is not so much to just disseminate knowledge, but it's more to encourage the activity of thinking. I've, I've always thought that. And it's partly my background. So listening to philosophers tell me philosophy is not a body of knowledge. It's an activity. Yeah. And it's a lifetime's activity. And at the end of it, you still, you still don't know what the answer is. Um, but I think that ha- does have wider application, that notion of actually we should all be, it may sound obvious as well that in a university we're all thinking, but I think you're right in a, in a ever more commodified, commercialized environment that we operate in, there just seems to be sometimes less space for people to be able to just sit back and think, uh, admit what they don't know and why they don't know it. Yeah. And of course, once you start to admit what you don't know and why you don't know it, then I think you're on the pathway to a certain form of progress, you know, and you're opening up a whole new vista of research that you can engage in and, and answer those questions. So that's so that, that sort of almost leap into an answer, which, okay, I say we do that on the podcast. We have to, we have to speak, but at the same time, we're not leaping into a pre-prepared answer. You know, it, it, it's an answer that it, that is evolving and unfolding in the conversation. And I think that's, Again, probably, although you've spoken about it more directly in terms of helping others, I suppose um, a more philosophical approach to thinking about accounting is, is, is in many ways the same thing, but, but differently described or articulated. But, you know, thinking about, well, if we want to make a change in the world of accounting and all the accounting scandals and issues around ethics and so on, then maybe maybe a different way of approaching some of the problems becomes important. Not to say the, the, the profession 
accounting, for instance, is very much a profession and it has ethical guidelines and codes of ethics and so on and so forth. That's fine. But I think sometimes just stepping back and thinking, what are we doing? Why are we making these claims? How are we making these claims? What are we emitting? It's one of my favorite questions whenever I'm asking myself about, uh, uh, whenever I follow a line of argument, I don't know if you do this yourself, Russ, I'm always also arguing against myself. Absolutely, absolutely. There's always that internal dialogue where I'm never happy with my line of argument. I think just because you learn, don't you, eventually, that unless you listen to other people, you make little progress because you need, you need either just the agonistic, you know, sort of push and pull that means that you forward your ideas, but also I'm only living one life. I, I can't experience enough to understand the world. You know, I've got to listen to others. Just... How do you feel about that? That, that is very much, um, you talked about uh, the different Steves that we encounter in the podcast. And that is that is philosophy Steve or Steve Critties, as I'm going to now call you. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that that is the nub of what it is we're, I guess, um, intending to do with this podcast um, is to create sufficient friction in people's thought processes that, heat arises and ideas you know stuff starts to bubble and it changes its consistency and you know we come up with new ideas and and one of the things that i have most loved teaching and I, which i do quite uh, a bit now is what i call my critical thinking boot camp and it's it's about a 3 hour session i do where i talk through um, argumentation. How do we argue? How do we counter? How do we counter a counter? You know, how do we concede weaknesses in our arguments? How do we use argument to provide the the defining structure of what we write rather than, than the other way around? Um, and those are some of the things I've most loved doing. And, and yes, I, I guess like you, you know, always questioning probing yeah but what about this you know i've done this a number of times watching tv programs and stop and i'll say oh there's this thing going on and i'm not sure it's this and then i have to go although actually yeah maybe that's not right and it's this thing instead <laughs> it's probably why it takes you know twice as long to watch a tv program in our house as uh, as the actual program lasts um but i think that is very much something that we that, that i i value i think in that process and you know one last thought for me, I, I guess, on that critical thinking is to say, I, I've i developed this routine now where I, I have this thing where I, I get them to come up with an argument and, with, and I they give me lots of reasons for something. It's an example I use, you know, about arguing that smoking is bad for you and they cluster the arguments into various areas and I, I challenge them as to what is a higher level argument and what's a more detailed argument, what's a warrant and, you know, what's the evidence and things that follow it. And then I get them to argue that smoking is good for you and we look at all of the counter arguments and we balance those and, and we talk about it. It's really, really, uh, you know, really enjoyable kind of good exercise. But the routine that I've developed is I say at the beginning, right, in this session, I am going to disagree with all of you, not because I do disagree, although I'm, I'm sure I will disagree with some of you on, on some points, and that's totally fine. But my job in this, my role in this, is to poke and prod and challenge your thinking and to bring out, you know, quote, the best in you in a, in a kind of cheesy way, but to maybe make you question when you state something quite knowledgeably, you say, it is what is the basis of that claim for knowledge? Is that actually just an assumption? Is it built on faulty knowledge or a faulty premise? And if it isn't, great, brilliant. 
we all know lots of different things, but not taking, you know, almost the basics for granted. Um, there are, there are things that smoking is helpful for medically that you can kind of say, look, even smoking, right. Has bits that are good for your health. Okay. There aren't very many and they're quite minor, but there are positives to something as universally, you know, accepted to be bad for your health, but you know, people are free to do it. It's their choice, liberty and all the rest of it. Um, you can, you can twist almost anything and your thinking gets better. Your argument gets better when you embrace counter arguments and concessions and balance and those sorts of things. And so I, I feel a real drawing together of, of, of that kind of way of, of thinking. And it's been easy for me to teach that as a detached, almost, um, you know, bolted on process. Um, I think what is harder is teaching that as embedding it as a core way of working with students, although it is something I do, you know, try and do a lot. I suppose if I gently push that back to you and as we sort of head towards the end of, of this podcast, how do you think you've been able to embrace um, your love of interest in philosophy in the teaching in your technical domain around accounting? I think it's really picking up on um, your critical thinking class. And it was, it was quite interesting. I don't know if you noticed you're doing it, but you, you talked about there being arguments and then thinking about other assumptions on which uh, th- there was a base that are questionable. And this, so I'm going to answer your question and bring it back to notions of methodology. Nice. Because I think what's really interesting is when we think about uh, quality of research or, or rigor, one of the things we're often thinking about is quality of argument and the logical steps. And you can commit fallacies and argument all the time. But I think what, and certainly my, sort of my background in philosophy and mathematics has taught me is you always end up reaching a point where there's a premise or an assumption or an axiom, isn't it? Which is fundamental to where you'll end up but which you don't argue for because it's something about where you take to be your beginning step. And I think what's been interesting about talking about ontology and epistemology and methodology more generally um, is that hopefully people can now appreciate that those beginning points, those premises, those axioms tend to reflect an orientation to the research rather than sort of, this is a clear foundation, research should start here. So going back to our original metaphor as well, that coming back round, hopefully one of the things that we do, in a, and I think it's important to do, for instance, in terms of teaching accounting, where I always like the, the, the example of tax. We'll, we'll introduce a tax rule and people will say, so why, where is that from? That doesn't seem logical. And I'll say, no, it isn't logical because that, that's not why it exists. It, isn't, it doesn't exist because it's been deduced from a set of principles. It exists because there was a reason for there to be attacks of that nature. And over time, they've, they've accumulated and approaches have accumulated. And then the government intercedes and changes a particular tax because it wants to incentivize investment or whatever it may be. So it's very much about those beginning points, which are not part of the argument but that will shape the direction will eventually, well, they'll have a huge impact on our endpoint and we'll get there logically, but we can debate them endlessly. And, and I think it's rather like that with that sort of the classic quantitative, qualitative, or are you a realist or not, or whatever. Those, those, in the sense that they aren't the arguments, 
they're the assumptions. Yeah. And then what we're looking at is, and how, how are we then consistent and coherent and leading us into our final position, which I think is a nice sort of, I think I've drawn together a number of different strings. <laughs> We've got about- Masterful <laughs> web weaving that, uh, Steve Cretese, yes, masterful. Right. So are we, are we um, at the end of this one for today, do you I, think? I think so. I'm, I'm going to leave it as I always do with just one final- hackneyed cliche thought that's come to me whilst you were talking um, and you pulled all of that together beautifully and I'm going to sum it up into into a single sentence which is for me I think research is built on bean bags not breeze blocks oh excellent we go. Well done. <laughs> that might be the title of this podcast episode we'll see so thanks, thanks very much everyone for listening and, and Steve for contributing I've been Russ Glennon with me I've had Steve Wynn and this has been Research Matters. You've been listening to Research Matters, exploring what makes high quality research from MMU business and more. Brought to you by Catherine Roycroft, Stephen Buzz Duggan, Steve Wynn, and Russ Glennon. <laughs>